Good morning, church. Great to see you. Beautiful morning. Hope you're well. Thanks for bringing your Bibles with you this morning. We're going to look at a, uh, a familiar story today. Most of you uh, know it well, and it is the story that Jesus told of the prodigal son. What I want to do is reference this story with regard to how we define family. Last week, as you know, we started this series called Home Improvement. Lots of good feedback from mostly mostly good feedback from last week's message and 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 so I know it was uh, stirring at least on a number of levels as we tried to paint a portrait of God's best design ideal design for family and today I want to I want to talk about definitions how do we define an authentic family what what are the qualities of a family that give it the best potential for for God honoring success and so I want to use as a reference this family that Jesus described that contained within it this prodigal. And we will learn uh, some of the wrong ideas about what family is as well as try to define authentic family. So if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 15 is our text. I'm going to begin reading at verse 11. If you don't have your Bibles, we'll project these words on the screen for you. And as is our custom, what I invite you to stand as you're able to hear God's word. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? Here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, the, he heard the music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. May God inspire us today through this important story. You may be seated. Thanks so much. A man on his deathbed smells the aroma of freshly baked chocolate chip cookies. 
He's warmed by the thought that his wife is making his favorite food in his last moments. So he summons his last energy, goes down the staircase on all fours, as it were, because of his reduced strength, and he summons himself, making his way into the kitchen where he finds on the countertops there the cookies as they are cooling. He reaches up, and as he reaches for a cookie, his wife, with her spatula, smacks him right on the hand and says, you leave those cookies alone, those are for the funeral. Oh, well, that's horrible. That's terrible <laughs> in a slightly humorous way. Now, that, that can provide some humor, of course, but it may also illustrate for us what can happen if we have the wrong concept of what family is. If we identify the values in family and they're slightly askew, they're slightly off, and our definition is wrong, then we can come up with the wrong expectations, we can engage in the wrong type of relationships, we can make poor decisions. And so it's important for us to define well what it means to be family. I want us to begin today by just listing three wrong definitions. You know, sometimes it helps to know what's right if you also can comprehend it uh, juxtaposed to what is wrong. And these three ideas of a wrong definition of family may give us perspective. And it's on your outline there, and I hope you'll write these things down just so you can remember them a little better, perhaps. The first wrong definition of family is the accidental theory. Accidental. This is, this is where we have necessary uh, 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 need in your, your life, food, clothing, and shelter, that comes with an accident, a freak accident, a, a coincidence, circumstances beyond my control. So I have needs, food, clothing, and shelter, and I'm, and I'm hooked up with people that I believe are by accident. This is the person who is born uh, by circumstances beyond their control into a certain group of people or adopted by a set of parents or fostered in. This is combined by the necessities of life. So I have needs, but I've been connected with these people that I'm sure aren't the right people. Uh, these people find themselves in their family context by accident and by necessity. This is the child's view of family. Think about that. There's no sense or recognition that God is the one who sets us in families. There's no divine order or providence. It's all just coincidence. Therefore, in the child's world, he longs for and needs, deeply needs, intimacy and safety and significance and nurture. But in this case, when the wrong view of family is embraced, it's accidental, I don't really belong here, then it actually issues forth in bitterness and rebellion. This is the story of the prodigal son. I'm here, but I don't want to be here. I'm here, but it's not really the will of God for me to be here. I'm here, but I want to be elsewhere. And so as in the prodigal's case, he says, my necessities have been met, and now I'm old enough to make it on my own. Simply give me what is mine. I'm moving on. I'm out. I no longer need you, and I'm declaring myself no longer part of this family. Whatever freak spell it was that put me in this family to begin with is now officially broken. Now listen to this summary statement on this wrong definition. Every prodigal, boy or girl, man or woman, every prodigal who has left the home in rebellion was operating under the accidental theory of familyhood. They believed at its core, at its root, that they were in a family that they weren't supposed to be in. And so I'm out accidental theory. It's a wrong theory. It's not a biblical theory of family. Now, here's a second 
a wrong idea or notion of family. And that is the obligatory, that I'm somehow obliged. This is when my personal need, I need food, clothing, and shelter, I need to be cared for, is met with my obligation that I feel toward others or their obligation toward me. Now, men, I'm sorry to report, this is often the male view of family, obligatory. I have deep personal needs. I'm a man, I have deep personal needs. They are, for example, sexual, they are relational, and they are food. And pretty much that's the whole list. In, in that order, perhaps, I don't know. And so here, here's a man, and he asks himself, what is the answer to my need? And he says to himself, a family. That's what I need. I need a family. But of course, this is only a means to an end. In order for the man's needs to be met, he figures he needs a family. And when the man gets in a family, then he also instinctively realizes there's a reciprocal nature to family. So he also feels an obligation to the others in the family. Therefore, the family for such people becomes this contract of you do for me and I will do for you. I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. You cook for me, I'll provide for you. And that's how it unfolds. Oftentimes, though, this creates great bitterness in relationships because expectations go unmet. There's not enough sex or meals or clean socks or enough income or vacations or wardrobe. There's not enough of something. And one of the party's expectations are not met, and therefore, there is desertion. Now listen to this summary statement. There is not one desertion of father or mother from a family apart from the obligatory theory of familyhood. Anytime a man leaves his family, anytime a woman leaves her family, it is because they have wrongly defined the family as a place where needs are met and I'm obligated to another person or they are obligated to me. The obligation at some point then to the other person is no longer strong enough to keep them together because what's absent is there's no real bonding, there's no intimacy, there's no sense of oneness, there's no unity, and so the separation becomes inevitable. And so what we see exercised in families is that literally a person packs up and leaves and they separate, or they live under the same roof and they are just functionally separate, and they never really relate. So this is the obligatory theory, and it's a wrong-headed theory of family. Now the third wrong is, is a philosophy that appears to be right, but I'm telling you up front it's wrong, so that when I, when I define it just a moment again, you won't go amen. So don't do that, because it's actually wrong. <laughs> and this view is most, almost nearly correct, it's close, but it oftentimes creates the very most bitterness. And this wrong theory of family is traditional. You know, write that down, traditional. Traditional family, look, that's not, that's not what God has in mind. And oftentimes, the more nearly correct you are, the more thoroughly wrong you can be. In this case, family equals a role that I play. I'm the husband, I'm the father, I'm the wife, I'm the mother, I'm the kid, I'm the sibling. Oh, there's a role, an important role that I play, plus emotions. You know, I want, I want an enriching emotional connection with people plus tradition. So it's role plus emotion plus tradition. Now, for example, 
Uh, I am in the role of the mother. I love my family. Tradition says that we'll all be together at Thanksgiving. And there are traditions in place. We will eat turkey. We will look at video uh, from everyone's vacation. The children will play at our feet. It will be a warm and wonderful time. That's, that's the ideal. That's what I have in mind. It's the traditional moment. It disintegrates, though, into a family argument when Aunt Sue has had too much to drink. And later, Uncle Bob will not come out of the den. It's time to look at the family vacation tape, but he won't come out because he's engaged with some of the teenage boys in a profound religious experience in the den. They're watching NFL football, and they won't come out, not for anything, and especially not for vacation videos. And so therefore, the role becomes undefined, gets all mixed up. The emotion is insufficient. Folks won't connect with one another the way I want them to. And therefore, the tradition becomes hollow, and it all becomes a wash. Now, now, women, this is a view which is most often prescribed by you, or at least by other women rather than men. The problem is that the idea of a role-oriented family is superficial. It doesn't go deep enough. Therefore, if it's superficial, it's just based on this is what tradition says that you should be doing in this moment. If it's just a role-oriented family, then it is therefore fragile. It's romantic, it's dreamy and fairy tale-like, uh, but it has very little experience in the real world. It cannot face the harsh, glaring reality of life as it really is. If my idea of family is a Norman Rockwell painting, then I am going to be disappointed. Because life isn't a Norman Rockwell painting. Life is actually really, really messy and really, really hard. And so we can't live and have an expectation in family that life in the family is all going to be like a, like a squishy American holiday because it just isn't going to be that way. It, it's, it's not the world of Martha Stewart uh, that, that is out of prison. It's different than that. So let's, uh, let's then try to understand what a biblical definition of family is. Family, I think, from a biblical perspective, equals relationship plus commitment plus communication plus a foundation based on our faith in God. So it is relationship, it is commitment, it is communication, it is God. It implies a depth, a deepening, a, a leaning into relationship and commitment and covenant and, the, and the, the, the things that make relationships work no matter the severity of the storm. That's a biblical definition. Now let me just uh, let me talk about that for a minute. I I saw this news article some years ago from Augusta, Georgia. Here's how it read: it "said quote A train ran over a man, Thomas H. Watson. He was asleep on the railroad track between the rails. The train ran over him, and as the engineer saw it, he applied the great uh, brakes, stopping the train over Mr. Watson. Now don't get too squeamish. Mr. Watson survived all this." Mr. Watson, as it turns out, was found under the train 
unharmed and still asleep. He's asleep between the rails. The train comes over him. The engineer sees it, stops the train. So the train is actually over him. He doesn't wake up. When the police arrive, they grab Mr. Watch and shake him and say, Sir, are you all right? He awakens and sits up quickly. And the only injury he he sustained was when he cracked his head on the bottom of the train, sitting it up abruptly, jerking for him. And I thought, you know, that could be an illustration of people who are going through life right now who actually are asleep between the rails of a train and the speeding locomotive of life and relationships and reality are just hurtling past them. And they don't even know it. They're not awake. They're not aware. And it just gets past them before they even know what happened. How many times I've sat with people whose marriages have failed and they have said to me, I don't know what happened. Really? You don't know? And I just, that was incredulous to me. For years I, I've heard people say that to me. I, I don't even know what happened. And that's just stunning to me because if anyone should know, it should be you. But, but as it turns out, as I've reflected on this, people weren't lying. They weren't, they, weren't, they weren't being deceptive in any way. They didn't know what happened. They didn't know. You know, in my worldview, the way I, I kind of go through life, if something goes bad, something that bad goes bad, you know, I'm going to autopsy that thing. I'm going to find out what happened. I'm going to know because, dang, that was painful. And I'm going to do everything I can to avoid that kind of pain again. But that's just, that's just me. But I think there are people who are just not awake, not aware, not facing into the realities of life, you know, just the real stuff that's around you. So, I, so one thing I, I would just say today is, you know, come on, let's, let's wake up. I mean, tomorrow morning, Monday morning, there will be a 50-year-old man who wakes up, and he's in a dull stupor, and his wife will say to him, put down the paper, I need to speak with you, and he'll just lower it slightly enough to, so that his eyes appear, and she will say, I want a divorce. He will say, a divorce? And he will, he will actually wake up hitting his head on the bottom of the train going, a divorce? Shoot, I didn't even know we were married. You know, I vaguely remember a ceremony 30 years ago, and you know, a few years after that, I remember some kids running around, but really, I guess I missed the whole thing. Just not paying attention. And there are too many folks like that who are just disengaged. Remember last week I talked about a definition of authentic manhood, and I said there are four parts of that. One is that a real man will reject passivity because men tend to be passive socially, relationally, and they tend to be passive spiritually. That's why it's hard for men, for women, wives, to get men to engage them at at a real nurturing emotional connection, a, a real level of communication that's meaningful. And it's hard to get men to actually take the lead in the spiritual dynamics of their home and, and their own life. Men tend to be passive, but a real man will reject that passivity. And he, will, and he will take responsibility, and he will lead courageously. And he'll expect God to give him a reward for it. 
So what happens in the life of a person who wakes up and says, look, I want to be better at this. I want to actually give myself to family in meaningful ways. Then these are the things that you need to focus on, I think. The first is relationship. Now, relationship is different than role. We're not acting in a play. This isn't just, I'm the husband, father, so I should look this way and act this way. And in, in many women's lives, it's, well, I'm the wife and the mother, and so I should look this way, and I should behave a certain way, and my children should always present a certain way. And when we go for the family portrait, it should be, you know, just idyllic. You know, like two kids, they're all polished up, and the dog, and there's, you know, and everything's just perfect. And it's a Norman Rockwell painting. But listen, relationship is required. It's more than role. It's greater than role. You know, uh, we've heard sitcom stars who play, in some cases, despicable characters on a, a sitcom or, or in a soap opera or something like that. And there will be people come up to them on the street. I've heard people remark about this and, and spit on them. I heard one guy who's a despicable character in a soap opera, a guy on the subway just walked up to him and spit on him, <laughs> called him some names. You're despicable. Another woman walked up to, to him on the street and just slapped him in the face. He said, hey, look, I just play a despicable person on, on TV. I'm really quite nice. Stop hitting me. But it's more than role-playing. It's more than that. Uh, there, there, there are women who try to play the role of wife and mother. There are men who try to play the role of husband and father. Listen, you're not being a father in a vacuum. You're, you're the father to a living, breathing human being. And in order to influence and mentor and shape and nurture and mature that child, you're going to have to engage that child in a, in a deep and meaningful relationship. Fatherhood is more than biology. And fatherhood is even more than showing up. In today's America, showing up is like the ideal father. I mean, you're, you're actually there. I mean, you're present. You're in the home. You're there. I mean, you, you go to work. You come home at night. You... You know, when, when your kid has a soccer game, you go. And so, you know, in America today, that's it. You know, you're, you're the ideal father. I mean, you show up. But listen, showing up, showing up is good, and it's important. It's a good start. It's a good foundation. But that's not what your children need. They need more than you just showing up, play, you know, fulfilling the role. Well, he's here. If, Dad, they need you to lean into them relationally. They need you to, to, to press into them to have the meaningful conversations. Dozens and dozens and dozens of times over the years, we've, we've counseled teenagers with our staff, with our counseling center, and most of the time we get a teenager in our office and they've got some issue. Many times it's a very serious issue, personal issue, and the question is always asked, have you talked to your parents or your parent about this problem? And almost inevitably, <laughs> You know what I'm going to say next. Kids say, talk to my parents? Are you kidding? I would never talk to my parents about this. And, and oftentimes we say, listen, go home and talk to your parents about this. Don't come back until you've talked to your parents. And it just makes you wonder. Could I just remind you, dads, fathers, you are the one who teach your boys how to be men. A mother can help. A mother is important. A mother is essential. A mother's presence is absolutely fulfilling. But it's the dad who teaches a boy how to be a man. 
She can't do that. And let me just add this. And this is why I talk about men so much, because men are under attack in our culture, and I want to elevate men. I don't want to diminish men. I, wanna, I, wanna, I don't want to be here loud and clear. I, I don't want there to be any equivocation in your mind about my position on this. Men are essential to the nurture of the next generation. It is the father who teaches a girl how to relate to boys, not the mother. It's the father who teaches his daughter how to be a woman around a man. He does it. Now listen, listen, sir, you can't do that for your sons and daughters if you are not relating to them in significant ways. That's why the words have to be said. Son, I love you. I'm proud of you. You've got what it takes to be the man that God's called you to be. And to reinforce that in, in the context of relationship, it is the father who says to the daughter, you are loved. I love you. You are precious to me. You are the most valuable thing in the world to me. And in the context of the depth of that relationship, she is learning self-esteem. She is learn learning self-concept. She is learning personal value and worth. And so when it comes time to relate to a boy, you know, the first, listen, a 15-year-old girl who's, who's starting to develop physically and is attractive, listen, she's going to be honey to flies. And she walks into the high school the first day, if she doesn't know who she is, and she doesn't realize how valuable she is, and she doesn't know she's precious, and she doesn't know that there's already a man in her life that loves her unconditionally, then she might just reach for the first mistake with a zipper that reaches for her. It's the father that teaches her how to be around men. Because she knows who she is. And he, she can take that teenage boy or he, she can leave him. She doesn't need him she, because her dad loves her. She's secure in that. She knows who she is. <laughs> I'm talking. I'm talking now. I'm telling you. The generation, the generation of kids right now, they're, they're damaged. They're, they're, they're confused. They need help. They need help. So fatherhood is a big deal. And it's more than biology. And it's more than just showing up. It requires relationship. The second thing is commitment. Now listen, this is more than obligation. The more members there are in the family, the more committed I need to be. And we have to work in each other's lives. God holds us accountable for each other. Remember this? What was the, the first question asked of any human being anywhere? Do you remember this? This was when God shows up in the Garden of Eden and he talks to Cain. He says, Cain, where is your brother? Do you remember Cain's response? Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? So Cain, Cain admits that he, he has a brother. Cain admits that he is a brother, but he doesn't admit he has any responsibility for him at all. And so Cain is essentially asking, am I to be responsible for my brother? And the answer is, well, yes. Yes, you are. He's your brother. We're responsible for each other in the family. That's what we do. That's who we are. We're committed to each other, no matter what. Listen, it's not an accident that you have the family you have. You may not like it. You may not prefer it. It may not be your choice. You may wonder about it. But listen, it's not an accident. It's more than an obligation than that knits you together. 
you're responsible for more than taking your place at the dinner table. There's a commitment necessary. I, I have a good friend. His name is Frank. He's a, he's a colleague of mine. He's a United Methodist pastor in one of the southern states. And I heard him one night tell his story. And I want to rehearse it with you th this morning. It is, it is so powerful. Frank is a miracle of God. Let me tell you why. His mother divorced his father when he was young. She remarried, and his stepfather was horribly abusive. When I say horribly, I am not over, overstating. This is not hyperbole. This guy was evil. It's horrible. And he never called Frank by his real name. Never. He always called him by an obscenity. A horrible, gross, vulgar obscenity. That anytime he addressed him, hey, blankety blank, pick up your socks. Hey, blankety blank, what's the matter with you? This is all he heard all the time, every day, all the time. And he said by the time he was in the fourth grade, he actually identified himself with that most base and common obscenity. He actually, his self-concept was, well, that's what I am. Very few of us can comprehend this. One day then in his fourth grade, his teacher said to him, Frank, why don't you do better in school? And he said, I can't because I'm nothing but a, and then he said it. He said that term that his stepfather had been calling him for years. He said it out loud. And you know what his fourth grade teacher did? <laughs> she burst into tears. <laughs> if you heard him tell this story, it would move you. She said, Frank, who told you that? Where did you hear that? He said, I've been told that my entire life. He said that little fourth grade teacher jumped to her feet and raced over to him. He said, she tenderly put her hands on his head. When he told this story decades later, he said, I can still feel her touch on my head. And this is back when teachers could pray for kids out loud. And he said, she said, out in the name of Jesus, you lying spirit, you come off of this boy in Jesus' name. He said, from that day forward, every day of the world, she went out of her way to remind Frank how special he was, how handsome he was, how intelligent he was, how much potential he had how good he was, how wonderful a guy he was, and how impressed she was of him. She said the words, you're lovable, Frank. I'm proud of your progress, Frank. You're doing great. You've got great potential. God's going to use you, Frank. You get ready because God's going to use you in your life. And you know what she did? She did it. She did it. She broke that thing off of him. Amazing. That destructive curse came off of his life. 
induced by those evil words by a wicked stepfather who didn't have a clue regarding his relationship commitment in the context of a biblical family. Could I just say this, and if you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this. There could be no more powerful commitment than for everyone in this church to renew your commitment to their family. There could be no more powerful commitment today than for everyone here to renew your commitment to family. It's important. We love it when God does things. God heals someone's body or saves someone's soul. It's a great thing. We love it. Let me tell you what I love. When I see families get it back together. When I see marriages pull it back together. When I see, when I see children starting to come out of that low spot and start to come back up again. Making a difference in their lives. That, that matters to me. It takes relationship. It takes commitment. The third thing is communication. And this is you know, kin to both of these relationship and commitment points. But communication is the character and vehicle of all covenant relationships. God created the world how? With a spoken word. <laughs> Let there be light, and there was light. This is how God put the place together, with words. The creative power of spoken words. And so I would just simply say there's no way to develop commitment, relationship, familyhood without communication. And this is especially important for men who tend to be the strong, silent type. May that whole image be forever accursed. May we just set it aside, rejecting that passivity. And please, sir, start to learn how to use words. Be in communication with your wife. Learn how to use words that express how you feel. I'm happy. I'm sad. I'm angry. I'm confused. Practice these words when you're in the car alone. You may not even know what you are, but you can say them out loud. Even when you're with your wife, just say them sometime. You know, I think I'm angry. She'll say, what are you angry about? Well, I don't know. And she'll help you figure out why you're angry. You can say, I'm, I'm sad. Oh, I'm sorry. Why are you sad? Well, I don't know. I just feel a little sad. And she may just care for you a little bit. Or maybe just say, I'm happy. And she'll say, I'm happy too. you have to practice. In fact, practice right now. Guys, you ready? Men, you ready? We're going to use words. We're going to say, I'm happy. You ready? I'm happy. Good. It was weak, but at least you're trying. Last night, it was hilarious. I, I, asked, the, I asked the guys last night, say, I'm, ha I'm happy. I was ready, and they went, I'm happy. Couldn't even hear them. I said, well, that doesn't come out very easily. How about I'm angry? Let's try that one. I'm angry. And angry comes out easier. Yeah, I'm angry. Yeah, I can talk about that. No. But you have to practice these things. Listen, it's not easy for your wife, you know, living with a vegetable. You've got to talk to her. Communication is important. Here's the last thought. This is the last piece. And as I mentioned last week, and this will be the theme throughout this series, you've got to get your foundations right. You've, you've got to keep Christ and your relationship with God at the center of your own life and the center of your family. A home without God is nothing more than a godless household. Think about that. It's the first and foremost responsibility of every leader in the home to place God first. If you're a father or a mother, single parent, 
grandparent in charge, no matter what the structure is in your family, God must be first. A covenant based on nothing but ourselves is no greater than or enduring than my most profound weakness. You ever thought about that? If you, if you don't, if you don't put God at the center of it and don't rely on Him for your ultimate strength, then your family is only so strong as your greatest weakness. We all understand the axiom. We, we all can finish this statement. A, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Now, when we, we can conceptualize that, right? I mean, a chain, that makes perfect, yeah, the perfect sense. Listen, in relationship, if you're going it alone, and you're only managing in your own ability, your own wittiness, your own intellect, your own strength, your own capacity, listen, it's, it's going to fail you because ultimately your relationships in the long haul, especially in a family context, are only as great as your weakest and most profound area of most uh, uh, vulnerability. Your life is only as strong in and of yourself as your weakest point. Because that's where you, that's where you will break, that's where you will implode, and that's why we need God. Had a guy look at me one day and said, "Our marriage is going to last because we love each other," and I laughed at him. That's charming, you know. That's beautiful. Yeah, that's great. You know, feel ya. Your family isn't going to last because you love people as deeply and as profoundly as you love them. Listen, there's going to be a moment when, when there isn't anything in your power that can hold it because of, the, because of the storm that you're in. That's when you have to say, oh God, God, I can't do this. We can't make it. God, God our weaknesses are being accepted exploited right now. I mean, it's just a big light. It just looks like the light always hits where we're weak. All the time, we just get fragile, and we start to crumble. We come apart. We fragment. It's happening in our family. That's when you, that's when you, when, when this is the most important part. God, I cannot make it in my own strength, but I believe that I can do all things who, through Christ who will give me strength. That's, that's the key. God must be first. He must be central. He must be our focus. Now, let's bring this in. Back to the prodigal. The prodigal son had the wrong view of family, right? The family was no longer meeting his needs, so he refused any further obligation. So his, the obligatory uh, definition of family that he had embraced wasn't working and he said, look, I'm not going to play the traditional role game anymore. I'm not going to be the good little boy anymore. I'm out. And so he had the wrong definition of family, and so he left. All of the false definitions which tried to sustain him, they broke. And he had nothing left to hold him in place. He demanded that which was his, and then he left. He departed. Think about the older brother now. He also had the wrong view of family. His view of family was that traditional role definition and the older brother was clinging to that old, romantic, unrealistic notion that everyone would be perfect all the time. Therefore, when his younger brother sinned, he cut off the relationship and refused to welcome him home. He never got past that. He disappointed me. He failed me. He hurt me. I'm jealous of him. I don't understand why 
the father loves him so much when he's been so bad I don't get it he's he doesn't fit in at Thanksgiving anymore so I'm not gonna reconcile with him and we could go through this room today and every single one of us in this room could tell the story of someone we know in our family who has that attitude and they've cut off relationships with people who failed because they weren't perfect not good not good only the father had the right view see the father got it the father essentially came to this point look that's my son my son that is my son he's my son he is my son that prodigal that boy that wayward boy he's my son that's my that's my son and so when he came home the father said look I know this isn't about me this isn't about my reputation this isn't about the image of my family and the community all these things that get us all whacked out and off point he actually got it this is about God this is about forgiveness this is about mercy this is about acceptance this is about love and so he welcomed the boy back he said don't you understand that boy was dead and gone but now he's alive and he's back he was lost but now he's found Let, let's throw a party only the father understood relationship and commitment and communication and faith that's what holds families together now let me ask you this as we conclude what is your understanding of God in your life how do you perceive him I want you to think the best thing you can think about family just imagine the very best things that you can think think of the best things regarding a father the very best things maybe you didn't have a great father but imagine a, a father who's just as great and wonderful as you can imagine a father who would lay down his life for his children think of a father who would love you no matter what no matter what you did how far off you went he'd still love you think of a father who would care for you and provide for you who would comfort you when you were weak who would protect you when you were lonely who would even give up his own body and his own blood so that he could establish or reestablish you in his family think about that think of a father that if you went a million miles away would be waiting for you with open arms when you return home well that's not only the father we should aspire to be but that's actually the way God relates to us and this sermon of course has been designated toward families and thinking about that but I may have been talking to someone else today and you're just an individual who's been wayward and it's time for you to come home you need to come home you need to reestablish your relationship with the father you need to say God I need your forgiveness I need your strength I need your help I've made a mess I don't even deserve to be talking to you let alone included in your family but I'm willing to do anything if you'll just let me back in the back on the property somewhere and maybe that's the challenge for you so today as we pause and pray and sing this last song maybe you'd like to just come home reestablish and reconnect with your relationship with God and if you'll do that then you'll have the foundation necessary to lead your family in a meaningful way let's pause and pray Lord we thank you this morning for your word this amazing story Lord I pray that you would inspire us God we're all reminded that we're flawed and we fail and we're not perfect my goodness so God lead us 
into values and strengths, virtues that, that give us the ability to survive the difficult times, the imperfections, the failures. And Lord, help us to get a good, then clear definition of what family really is. It's about relationships and commitment and communication. It's about you. So Lord, fill our lives with your strength. Fill our minds and hearts with your wisdom. Help us to get up from this place hopeful that you have a future in mind for us and our families. Thank you for this grace, we pray. In Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Would you stand and sing with us?